Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. You got to give a hand for Alex. Alex was running everything today. If you don't know Alex, I just met him this morning, but thank you, Alex. Stephen was going to be here with us this morning, but uh, he wasn't feeling very well, so we had to pull an audible this morning. And uh, Vivian, thank you for leading us and, and carrying us through. We appreciate you guys. Hey, if you have, I haven't met you before, my name is Jason. I've been gone for the last three months. Uh, we've been on sabbatical. I should explain. I guess that sounds a little odd. Where has he been? Was he lost? We were gone for the last three months just on sabbatical, taking some time away. It was a needed time just of refreshment, refocus. You know, we've been in ministry 26 years, hard to believe. My first church was in 1995. We planted a church called University Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, right after the Branch Davidians. We came in, (laughs) kind of cleaned the thing up. And I had a chance at that time to hang out with some pretty cool people. You may know some of these guys, Louis Giglio, just to throw some names out there, so you think more of me. Um, David Crowder, you may know that name. A couple guys named Robbie C., Chris C. Lots of guys wrote books, traveled the world, and then there was Jason. <laughs> and I was a part of that church, and I, most of my, my time was focused on the inner city. Actually, most of my ministry has been in the inner city from 1995 to 2006. was uh, really focused on the inner city and caring for uh, people within that community. And so the point of all sharing all that is we've been gone on sabbatical the last three months uh, just taking a time of reflection, a time some of counseling, just to step away and kind of evaluate where we are and what God's teaching us and saying, Lord, what are you teaching us right now? What do we need to learn about where we are? How do we need to grow? How do we need to change? And what does church need to look like as we move forward? And so we're very excited to re-engage with you. One of the things the Lord affirmed to us is just how much we love Bergen Park Church, how much we love you, how much we love this community, the community of Evergreen, and how much we want to, to work in a way that allows us all together to be in step where God wants to take us. And so I want to thank Jonah. He's carried a great deal of weight in the time that we have been gone. And so uh, please, when you see Jonah, wherever he is, there he is. I see you, Jonah. You can't hide. So thank you, Jonah. And uh, just thank you to this church. Thank you for your perseverance, your love. And if you have any questions about the challenges we've been through, we've been through a number of challenges as a church. We haven't solved those challenges well. And so you have questions about that, please, please come and speak to us. You know, as a church, we want to be, as much as we can, an open book. Uh, but we can only address those issues that you bring to us. And so please trust us as we trust you. And uh, we look forward to many years together. Hey, I got a few announcements. I'm kind of thrown into the fire here. This is my first Sunday preaching in three months, so I feel a little nervous there. And last night was prom. No, not for me. For my son. And so my wife was up to 3 a.m. I I had to go to bed eventually. I went to bed about 1 o'clock. And so we had about 12 kids, which was exciting because I love my kids being, I don't have 12 kids. I love my son with his 12 friends being at my house uh, and so that was a joy, just to see all these kids come in. And I imagine they're wondering, what's it like to be in a pastor's house, right, on prom night? So hopefully we debunked any issues 
around what that might be like. I think it was fun. I think they had a good time. And a, a good, safe time. You know what I mean? It was a good, anyways. <laughs> hey, one of the things I want to announce this morning is that we have new elders. We're going to be doing some uh, recognition and celebration. This church has a lot to celebrate. One, we, we're celebrating new elders. Two, we're celebrating we just paid off our mortgage. Now, we can celebrate that. Don't celebrate too much. Don't celebrate too much right now because we're actually going to have a celebration like service. So we're really going to celebrate then. But I just want to make that announcement. And I want to show you some of the pictures so you know who our elders are. And so we're going to put those pictures up. First of all, and you don't have to stand if you're here. Uh, these are the, here it is, drum roll, Bergen Park Church elder team, 2022-2023, Brian Douglas. There he is, good looking guy. Doug Downey. Then the next guy, you know him, Jonah Haddad, Kent Leopard, Greg Moore, Philip Summers, and Chad Wallace. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to have an ordination service, just kind of recognizing their role, but we want to make sure you as the body know who, uh, who's leading us and guiding us, and so that's, uh, we're excited about their stepping into that role. Let me also mention Tuesday night, <laughs> this Tuesday night, we're going to have Taco Tuesday, as well as Tuesday night prayer. Uh, Taco Tuesday's from 5 to 7, and Tuesday night prayer is from 6 to 7.30, so you can go get your tacos Get filled up and then come in here, be filled with the Spirit, and pray together for the church. So that's happening this, this Tuesday night. Well, it's good to see you. Hey, we're going to jump into Ephesians. I'm kind of picking up in Jonah's series. He's going to finish up Ephesians next Sunday, and so I'm kind of jumping into Ephesians chapter 6. And so if you want to grab a Bible, there's some in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, hey, that Bible in front of you is there for you to take home. We got others. We'll replace it. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verses 1 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord. Children, (coughs) excuse me, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, not by eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, we just acknowledge, we acknowledge that you're with us, the spirit of Christ dwells in us, we have salvation that is kept in us, that's kept for us in heaven, 
And when we trust in you, you tell us we can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, that inexpressible and glorious joy, which is the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, would it overwhelm us? Spirit, would you give us peace and rest? Whatever we carry into this room, whether we're here for the first time and we're in church and we just feel strange to be in this place or whether this is a comfortable routine, but we need to be awakened, to Father, to what you're doing, to who we are and what you're teaching us. So would you meet us here in this moment? We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this section in the book of Ephesians and it's called the Household Codes. It's kind of how we relate in relationships, whether last week we looked at marriage Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then we come into this section in which Paul is addressing parents. Children, obey your parents. And then he reminds us of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. And then we come to a very difficult section, which we're not going to have a ton of time to get into, which is on slaves and masters. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, what? Is the Bible affirming slavery? Is it affirming the ownership of a master, owning a slave, owning another human being? How do we wrestle through that? And as we look at the big picture, what I want you to see that what Paul's doing, I thought, oh, thanks. I was like, what was that noise? I've got a bit of a cough, so it's going to show up every once in a while. Um, So what Paul is doing is he's reminding us that the way that God changes us, now he changes us through his word, he changes us through the Holy Spirit, but he most often changes us in relationship with others. Marriage. I mean, I learned the depths of my selfishness and continue to do because of my poor navigation as a father, as a husband in in marriage. The workplace working for a difficult boss, working with people that are just as broken as you, just as selfish, just as manipulative, having children. All of these relationships, they're supposed to change us. And last week what Paul told us is that marriage is really a reflection of God's love for us. And it's not like God looked at marriage and said, you know, I got an idea here. Let's use this as an illustration for the way I'm gonna love the church and the church is gonna love me. No, he designed marriage with the intention of displaying his love. And so as we, and, and that married relationship go out to the world, it's, world, it's supposed to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. And see, Paul is giving us these, uh, God's given us these relationships, and Paul's saying to us, it's through these relationships that God wants to change you. Now, there's a lot of language in the household codes that are difficult, because the church has messed this stuff up. We've really messed a lot of this stuff up. So we hate words like submission, but you know, submission isn't just a, a marriage word, it's also how we're supposed to respond to governing authorities, it's how we're supposed to respond. It says mutual submission. There's times where, where we submit to others. What that means is we empower others. We respect others. We use our strengths in a way that builds others up. Submission is not just about marriage. It's about following Christ. I don't know if you know this. Christ submitted. He submitted to the will of the Father. And it wasn't to his benefit. It was for our Benefit. So if we're going to learn submission, church, we have to first of all exemplify what submission looks like, and that means every single one of us. How are we doing that in the church today? How have we done over the last two years when it comes to governing authorities? Honoring, 
submitting to? Because it says, children, honor your parents. Now, where do children learn that? Hey, they're looking to us. How do I talk about my boss? How do I talk about the people I disagree with? How do I talk about my president? How do I talk about those who are on the opposite sides of what I agree with? You know, our children are going to learn from us what submission looks like. They're going to learn from us what it means to love sacrificially. They're going to learn from us what it looks like to honor. They're going to learn from us what it looks like to love in a way that reflects Christ's love. So when we get to verse 1, see, what Paul's assuming is this is not just an instruction to children. He's assuming there is a culture of love, support, submission, honor, humility, sacrifice that this child is growing up in and he's saying to this child, as you see your parents do this, as you see your community do this, I want you to fall in the same pattern. Do you see that? Now listen, this stuff's hard. It's hard. Submission, hard. Honor, at times, hard. Loving self-sacrificially. I mean, husbands, we're supposed to take on the role of Christ. Do you know what he did? You know about Easter, right? I mean, he died on Good Friday. He rose again. So Jason, I want you to love your wife's brokenness. I want you to love her in her brokenness. And I want you to serve her in a way that purifies her and causes her not to fall in love with you and how great you are, but to fall in love with Jesus. Oh, my gosh. That's a weight. And so what Paul's saying as we come into this section in chapter 6, don't forget chapters 1, 2, and 3. How do you do this? Well, you've got to be captivated by something that's beautiful, majestic. You've got to be captivated by truth and mercy. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3 as Paul talks about what Jesus has done for us. And did you notice in chapter 1, he, there's this long sentence from verse like 3 all the way to 14. It's, in the Greek, it's one sentence. And it's just this ongoing praise of who Jesus is. You know, he loved us before the creation of the world. He lavished, he didn't just give you grace, he lavished grace upon you. He chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined you to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Why is he giving us all that? So on the difficult days, we'll look to Christ. Stop looking at your husband, he's a mess. Look to Christ. Stop looking at your wife. Look to Christ. Stop looking at your employees. Stop looking at your employer. Look to Christ. Children, stop looking just at your parents. Look to Christ. See, when we fail, often we look to each other. We look to what's happened to us and what Paul is saying in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. So church, before we get in this, I want to lay this foundation just to say, how are we doing? When it comes to how we engage in the public square, in our families, are we learning to look to Christ? Because that's where honor, submission, sacrifice, that's where it's going to come from. So with that very long introduction, sorry, had to kind of jump in there. Let's go into Ephesians chapter 6. And again, he starts off in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, obey your parents, and he's saying the reference point is because you're in the Lord. Because this is right. And then he goes on to say, honor your, honor your father, honor your mother. 
that we need to provide an environment where our children can trust, can learn what honor looks like, where they can understand what it means to obey. And so children, obey your parents, but then notice in the Ten Commandments, it says, honor your father and mother. Because see, obedience ends at some point. At 47, if I was obeying my parents, my wife would have a problem. You know what I'm saying? Because some of you have experienced that. You're two years into marriage and he's still listening to mom. Like, listen, son, you need to leave and cleave. You need to stop obeying and start honoring. And sometimes honoring means stop listening. But what the, the core intention is to value your parents. In the place that you are, in the moment that you are, honor your father and mother. Now, is that, is that straightforward and clear? No, it's difficult, isn't it? Just like submission is difficult. Just like sacrificial love is difficult. What does it look like when I'm in my 20s, my 30s, my 40s? What does it look like to honor my parents? And the word honor means to value. Not just value what they did, value who they are. Value the authority, value the role that they have in your life, value the reflection of who they are in comparison to God's role in your life. Honor your father and mother. And then he goes on to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Now here's what's so countercultural. In the Greco-Roman world, children were a commodity. Meaning you could get rid of one if you didn't like them. Still happens in the world today. You have too many children, you just, you take one out. And in that day, often what they would do is they actually place the child outside to be devoured or to be picked up by somebody else. And so when it's saying fathers, honor, you know, take care of, don't provoke your children, that was counter to the culture. I mean, the idea of being a father back in the first century was get them to obey, Get them to do what you need them to do. The reason you had enough kids is to take care of you. It's not about you taking care of them. And so within the church, we have a completely different way of doing family. We see the value of our children. And don't provoke them, which means constantly set up new standards that they're failing to meet. When we treat our children just according to the standards they meet or don't meet, that's called performance culture. And your child will live in that performance culture. And you may get their obedience, but you'll lose their honor. You hear me on that? You know what I'm talking about right there? You can get your child to obey, but in the process, you lose their heart. And a child that does not honor their parents, but just simply physically obeys, that's not obedience. That's not the kind of obedience you want. You want a child that honors their father and mother, because see, what's going to happen is, over time, you're going to capture that child's heart, and you're gonna capture their ears, and you're gonna have an influence in that child's life. So fathers, don't have a performance culture. Have an identity-based culture. What's an identity-based culture? It says, son, you're mine. You're mine. Regardless of what you do in your life, you belong to me, and my pleasure in this relationship is that I am the only person, I'm the only person you get to call dad. Now, even if there's a stepdad that comes in, listen, I'm still, I'm, I'm dad. You are mine. And see, parents, when we discipline our, chi our children, we've got to have that identity-based culture to speak to them in a way that says, hey, listen, as I address your behavior, your behavior does not determine our relationship. You know who taught us that? That's, that's God. What's grace? 
hey, I'm not going to treat you according to your behavior. I'm going to treat you according to what Jesus Christ has done. And so I'm going to treat you as a child because you've been adopted through Christ. See, parents, we have to treat our children according to the identity they have with us. You belong to me. So sometimes when they're little and you're disciplining them, you need to get down face to face and say, son, listen, I love you. Daughter, I love you. I am pleased with you. But we need to talk about your behavior. So understand, your behavior doesn't separate you from me. You belong to me. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't over-discipline, but listen, don't under-discipline. Both of them, they're going to frustrate them. Instead, instead, treat them in a way, parent them in a way that leads them to Christ. And so here's the reality. Parents, you can't do this alone. Because there's two things we have to do. Discipline, which is moral instruction. Hey, son, listen, when you did that, yeah, that's not going to work. That's not gonna work. In this family, we don't live like, that's discipline, right? It's moral instruction. It's helping them to understand. It's accountability. When you do things like this, we don't roll that way. And then instruction means have a plan. Now, you don't have to have a perfect plan. You don't have to have an all-together plan, but do you have a plan to instruct your kids to know who God is and what he says? Are you teaching them that? And realize the greatest teacher will be your marriage, will be your parenting, will be the way that you do money, with the way you do politics. It's your life. It's not just what you say. And so what does Deuteronomy says? Hey, as you're living life, talk about this stuff. Don't make it some weird moment. That's just once a week. Oh my gosh, it's Bible study time. Okay. And it's kind of like disconnected from life. Talk about it as you get up and as you sit down, you're at the table. Hey, listen, this is what God's teaching me. And, and fathers, mothers, when you mess up, tell them you messed up. I mean, at the appropriate age, right? At the appropriate age. Tell them you messed up. Say, listen, son, when I was talking to you in that moment, that was coming out of my shame. That was coming out of my anger at this week, it's coming out. I just watched the news, shouldn't have done that, and then discipline you. That was, I brought the wrath of God down on you. We have to be honest about what's going on in our life, and when we mess up, we tell them. Why? That's our relationship with the Father. We want to mirror that with our children. And so it says, both instruct and discipline. And the reality is we cannot do that alone. You know, there's been times where I felt like a great dad. And sometimes. And there's other times where I thought, man, I am absolutely blowing this. And you know what I need in that moment? I, I don't need myself to just keep my, my walking in shame. I need people around me. You know what I need people around me to do, Jason? Stop looking at yourself. Would you look at Christ? Remember that whole story we talked about? Wives, husbands. Why are we in community? Why do we gather in church? Why do we need to be in small groups? Because we need help. And parenting is hard. And I need at times someone in my life that's kind of past that point, you know? Already walked past that point where your children are questioning things and say, hey, how did you get through that? To have them pray over us. To say, hey guys, we're going back into the parenting thing this week. Help us. Would you call me? Would you check in with me? Who are you doing life with? You can't do this alone and do it well. You can't. Because there's a way of doing parenting out in our culture, and there's a way that 
God wants us to do parenting. We have to get in a culture where there's people around us that are pointing us to Jesus. Do you see that? Now, second, he moves on from parenting and parents and kids to masters and slaves. And let me pause right there. I'd like to spend an hour on this. I'm not going to. The slavery that Paul is describing is not the chattel slavery of the Americas and Britain of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. It's not a race-based slavery. Slaves in the first century, they could have been of any race except for, I think, Roman citizens. People entered into slavery not just by being taken over by another imposing force, but some actually entered into slavery as a decision, a willful choice. Slavery was not necessarily a lifetime sentence. Some served for a period of time. They're called bond servants. Some, when they reached a certain age, they were let out of slavery. And so it's a very different reality. Now, it's not God's design. It's still not good. And Paul is not affirming slavery as an institution that we should promote. There's nowhere in Scripture that God says, you know, slavery's not bad. I know there's a few injustices there, but we we can get along with this. No. And realize the first century church did not have the power and the authority at their early state to question the Roman Empire. This is not a democracy. You You don't get a voice. You don't get free speech. You question the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is coming down upon you. And so what Christianity did is it changed the culture from the inside. It changed it within how we do life together. Now, let me explain what that looks like. Let's jump back into the passage. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Now, notice, as you would Christ. He's saying to slaves, listen, I know you feel powerless in your culture, but you have influence. And you have an opportunity in this unjust system to reflect your love for God and the beauty of the gospel. Now, it's unjust, it's broken, it's wrong, but you're not powerless because your master is not your master. Now, he thinks he is. He's got the arrogance and the pride to say, hey, I'm in control of this thing, I'm running this show, but rather there is somebody over him to whom he is accountable. And in this unjust system, you have an opportunity to reflect the God that you worship. Now listen, that's heavy, isn't it? That's hard. But he's he's telling them, as you do this, you're not doing this unto your master, you're doing it unto Christ. And so if you go to a few other passages like Titus chapter 2 verse 9, the same idea comes up. Sometimes it's translated bondservants or it's translated slaves. It says bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith. Now, the question is why? And then he tells us. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior so that you can make much of the God that you worship. That that master may look at you and say, what is it about you? What makes you different? Well, listen, I do everything I do for the glory of God. I've got a savior who I was wrong. I was enslaved to sin. He came down. He rescued me. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He honored the Father, and in that, he purchased my salvation. 
the reason I do what I do is for the glory of God. And see, that's what Ephesians 5 verses, Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 8 are saying. If you jump back in there, bond servants, obey your masters. Why? And then he goes on to say, as you would to Christ. Bond servants, verse 6. You're bond servants of Christ. Why? You're doing the will of God from the heart. He keeps reminding us the purpose of this. Watch this, verse 7. Rendering good Rendering servants with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. You're not serving your master. You're not serving your boss. No, you're doing it unto Christ. And, and here's what was so beautiful about the, the first century church. That they sowed the seeds of rebellion, what tore down slavery. They sowed this counterculture within the church. That when everybody gathered for communion, right, as we're going to do in just a few minutes. It wasn't like Paul said, you know, hey, wait, masters, come on, guys, first, you guys line up up front here, okay? Because we know the hierarchy of society. So you guys get here, uh, women, maybe you're next, children, maybe immigrants after that, finally slaves, and then we kind of go in order, right? We want to honor who has power. No. What happened? At the communion table, it was level. What is it like when... A master takes the elements and his slave is right next to him and they're worshiping Jesus together, recognizing that in Christ they're equal. Do you know what that does? It softens the heart. And so within the church, the, those seeds of rebellion were sown because they lived a counterculture of equality. That's what the church should be. It's not just about the teaching that we promote. Now, the instruction is important, but we should see that instruction lived out in the way we do life in the way that we do life. So what is, what is this teaching us about our relationship within our own employment? Is first of all, you're not working for your boss. Well, you are. You just need to know who the boss is. And it's not the guy with the titles, or the girl, the woman, whoever it is. Your boss is Jesus. So work not unto your employer, work unto Jesus. That's the idea. And one of the key elements of Christianity is this idea of submission to authority. That all authority ultimately comes from God. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father, he submitted to the Father's will and he sacrificed what was best for us, for the Father. So also we follow in that same pattern of the gospel. And we kind of see how that pattern of the kingdom works itself out when you think about the story of Jesus and his life when he's in the garden of Gethsemane there's two ways to do power and authority there's Peter's way and that tends to be our way in this culture and there's Jesus way remember what happened he's in the garden and they're coming to to arrest him what's Peter's idea of power and authority take it right somebody opposes you I don't know was he shooting for the ear I've always wondered was he a great shot or was that just you know Anyways, and what does Jesus say? Listen, that's not how my kingdom rolls, bro. I don't know if he said that, but that's not, it's not going that way, Peter. What does he say? I'm doing the will of my father. Now, now that takes a, a lot of submission. Do you understand that? that that's frightening. Because see, what happened to Jesus, he was crucified. It didn't turn out well in that sense. Joseph, you know the story of Joseph. Four times the story of Joseph said God was with him, the Lord was with him. Do you know where the Lord was with him? When he was in a pit. And he was sold into slavery. The Lord was with you. When he's falsely accused, when, when he was in prison. And then the Lord was with him when things kind of turned around, right? 
when he went one day from prison to the palace. Let's see, what Joseph did is, is whether he was in the palace or whether he was in prison, he gave his best to the Lord. And he, and he left the outcome up to God. Listen, I'm not doing this just for a promotion. I'm not doing this for eye service. I'm not doing this to get more money. I'm doing this because I love the Lord and this is what God has done for in my life and I'm gonna trust the will of my Father. I'm not gonna trust my will right now. And listen, sometimes it's not gonna turn out well. Sometimes crucifixion comes before resurrection. But are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust him? And so the first thing that Paul's telling us is that we're not working for our boss. Instead, he says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he's going to receive it back from the, from the Lord. The reward we're after is the reward that comes to us from our Father. Not just in terms of our position or money, whether he is a bondservant or free. Because 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Christ. So our faith should reorient who we're working for, but it also should reorient how we view our work. One, one thing that's challenging for us, I think sometimes we divide life in the sacred and the secular. Are we still doing that? Is that still, still happening? That we see what I'm doing somehow is sacred. And I've even heard people, I wish I could do something more meaningful. I don't know if you know in the Lord's Prayer, it says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. How does that daily bread come to us? You know, I know God says he's going to provide it, but listen, there's farmers, field hands, truck drivers. Do you realize that's sacred work? How's God going to provide us our daily bread if those people do not do their job well? We need to start changing the way we see the world because see what he describes here is you're doing the will of God when you do it unto God. Whatever you're doing, it is the will of God if you're doing it for the glory of God. Now listen, if it's something that's immoral, then it's not the will of God, okay? I'm sorry about that. If you're, if you're cheating and stealing, that's, that's not the will of God. But he's saying there's no division between sacred and secular. The only division is between sin and righteousness. Because I can get up here as a pastor and walk in my sinfulness and dishonor the Lord. And some Uber driver could pick me up later and take me to lunch and do it for the righteousness of God and glorify him. Because see, it's not unto man, it's unto Christ. That's what he's saying in verse six. Watch this, he says, not by the way of eye service, not when people are watching you, not just when somebody's eye, when it doesn't matter, it matters. Not as people pleasers. Because see, the idea is that God's, God's your master. He's watching you. Not just simply your boss. Rendering service, that, actually the end of verse, verse six, but as bondservants of Christ, notice what he says, doing the will of God, how? From the heart. Not mailing it in, but being committed to what I do. Verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to men. How are we to work? Not as if people are watching us, not to please men but instead from the heart. You know the difference between somebody who's mailing it in, right? And someone who's serving from the heart out of a commitment that is greater than the, just their own self-advancement. And then finally, as if you were serving Jesus himself. What if the taxes you're doing are Jesus' taxes? Don't change the way you do taxes. What if the student you're teaching 
is Jesus himself. What if the toilet, can we go there? You're cleaning is Jesus' toilet. The floor, the house that you're building is Jesus' house. That next patient that's coming in, it's Jesus. What do you say if you do unto the least of these? You following me? What if you saw every person that walked into your office as if you were serving Jesus himself? Would it change the game? I hope so. Otherwise, we've got another problem. That's what he's saying. You're working for me. And so employers, that's not your lackey. That's, that's Jesus. Honor your employee as if it was Jesus himself. Your work is valuable. Your work is valuable. A couple quotes real quick. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. We got that up there. <clears throat> On the other hand, it looks like a small thing when a maid or a cook cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, meaning to work unto the Lord, even such a small work must be praised as a service to God, far surpassing the holiness and the asceticism of all monks and nuns. Now, he, he kind of had an issue with monks and nuns, if you don't know about that. So he's not saying, you know, that's all bad. What he's saying is God has called us to work with all our heart. He hasn't called us to escape to a monastery and live in asceticism. And so when you work and clean to the glory of God, you're honoring and glorifying him. You're doing the will of God just as much as any other sacred task might be. John Stott says it this way. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, to spring clean the house as if Jesus were the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat their, parent, their patients, for nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, assistants, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if each, in each case they were serving Jesus Christ himself. That's the vision that God set before us. And here, church, let me, let me kind of end with this. We're going to celebrate communion. This community is not waiting for Jason Freeman to preach a great sermon. I, I'm sorry, they're not. It may inspire you, but they don't care. They don't care what we do in this building. We could offer the best programs. We could have the best music, the best songs. They don't care. You know what this community is waiting for us to do? To live outside of this building for the glory of God. That's it. When it comes to how we do marriage, when it comes to how we do work. Now, this is not about living it up to perfection. It's about humility. Because remember, part of the Christian life is repentance and faith. And there's sometimes, you know, as an employer, when you mess it, uh, employee, and you mess it up, you need to acknowledge that. Yeah, that, that, wasn't, that, wasn't, that didn't glorify God right there. <laughs> what this community is looking for is a counterculture of people who reflect the gospel in how they do life. Who love God and love their neighbor. That's what this community's waiting for. You know, and I, as I was coming back into the church over the last two weeks, some people were asking, you know, what's our vision? What's our vision? And I always give this answer, and I feel like it's, it's not what you want, but it's what, it's the truth. You know, I, I don't sit around at home thinking about what you can do for our church. 
My vision is not about what you can do for us. It's about how we can equip you to be who God has created you to be. You are our vision. And we want to equip each other, invest into each other, whether it's in our marriages, in parenting, in employment, and work, in such a way that when we go out into the world, our hope and our focus is on Christ and glorifying him. That's our vision. I know it's not sexy, right? It's not like some big statement you put up on the wall. It's you. It's you with Jesus becoming like him and seeking to do what he did. And listen, that means we need partnerships. We need partnerships. We need those of you that want to stand up and say, hey, listen, I could help couples in marriage. Messed that up enough, right? Got it right enough. We could do that. Hey, we could help some couples with parenting. Listen, I could get a group of business owners together and we could start talking about what it looks like to do the work that we do in a way that honors Christ. That's what it means to be the church, is together to come in community and disciple one another and what it looks like in submitting, honoring, loving, and pursuing Christ together. That's the beauty of the church. Hey, we're gonna celebrate communion together. If you didn't grab the elements, I think I have one. It's just, you can grab those elements. <coughs> Excuse me, they're in the back. They're also up front. And so we're gonna take, <coughs> take a minute. <coughs> and as we do this, we do it in a way that is recognizing who God is in our life, searching our own hearts, Lord, as I've listened, as I've studied the word this morning, what are you teaching me? And maybe this morning what you need is just to be renewed when it comes to your own parenting. Father, forgive me. Would you teach me? Would you lead me? Would you get me in relationships that will help me, whether it's in our work or in our family? <laughs> Let's spend a few moments in silent prayer just seeking our Lord together. search us know us as we are in your presence and Christ is in us reveal the things that need to change Father they could be fears anxieties they could be guilt that we need to just confess they could be shame over our past failures Father, it could be a vision for doing life differently. Show us what it looks like to honor Christ in our marriage, with our husband, with our wife. Father, may you remind us of the faces right now of our children. The gifts that you've entrusted to us? How do we discipline? How do we discipline <laughs> and instruct them well? 
in a way that honors Christ. <laughs> and Father, in the work that we do, whether it's just, whether we're programming, <laughs> whether we're serving others, whatever it is, Father, would you give us that vision of what it looks like to work in a way as if we were serving you and not just those who are over us. <laughs> Would you give us a renewed vision, Father, of how we live out our faith in a way that is, in a way that's real and tangible in life. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, <laughs> he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it in remembrance of him. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup. And he says, this cup, it represents the new covenant that's established in my blood. Let us receive it in honor and remembrance of him.